Let's pray. Lord, today we take up your command, the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Certainly one that's very sensitive in many ways. We pray that you would give us grace today to study your scriptures. Do not shy away from such an important topic, especially in our day and age. And to hold fast to what is good in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're to the seventh commandment, as I said. And uh, the seventh commandment speaks of not committing adultery, uh, which is really meant to guard the preciousness of marriage. Adultery is essentially breaking a marriage bond through sexual activity. Uh, If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the sixth commandment, I said this is a commandment that is universally accepted by mankind. You shall not murder. The seventh commandment is just the opposite. It's seen in many ways today by our culture as something that is oppressive, uh, something that uh, is even immoral in our culture to deny people uh, their own sexual exploits. Um, People might say today, we live in a modern culture. We're enlightened people. We've, we've been awakened to the powers of sexuality and the wonders of it. Uh, we don't need the archaic laws of some suppressive and prudish God to tell us that we can't do something. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. It's not very popular today to say... There are limitations on how you can express yourself sexually. Really, since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, uh, the world has become an oversexed culture. And I don't have to give you statistics or examples of that in our culture today. You know it, you see it, you hear it all the time. It is all around us these days. But lest you think that I'm simply here to sort of condemn the culture for its oversexed and overhyped sexuality today. The church has really gotten it wrong throughout the centuries at various points as well. People like Augustine, who's one of the greatest theologians ever, or Tertullian or Ambrose. Ambrose once wrote, celibacy is the only thing that separates us from the beasts. In other words, sex is for animals. We're humans. We're enlightened. We're rational creatures. My point in saying all of this is that humanity, whether it's the world or whether it's the church, is prone to get it wrong when it comes to human sexuality. And really, you might say the culture and maybe the church in some respects, too, or at least individual Christians are really trying to hold together right now two opposite views of sex. On the one hand, sex is everything. It will completely satisfy you. It will satisfy all your longings. It will make you a a person who is completely satisfied with being human. On the other hand, just the opposite view is sex is nothing. It's not important. You can have casual sex. You can be engaged in sexual exploits. And it doesn't do anything to you. It's not harmful in any way. And they're trying to hold these things together. And you might say it's sort of like grabbing a, a positive wire and a negative wire and putting them together What you end up with is a short circuit. It's broken. And that's the way in which sex is worked out in our culture today. There are people whose lives are torn up with a wrong view of sex. 
that leads to destructive practices. There's lots of pain in our culture over it today, private pain. And in some ways, the church has been silent. And while the church has been silent, the world has redefined sex and marriage in ways in which they want. And the church needs to speak to these particular issues. Now, the Corinthians, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12 down to chapter 7, verse 5. So if you want to turn in there in your Bibles, it's on page 955 in the Pew Bible. The Corinthians were prone to get it wrong too. And I'll point that out as we read through here. The two different ways in which they got it wrong. Actually, we're going to begin reading in verse 9. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And now what he's doing is quoting a Corinthian slogan. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And another quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up our, uh, our um, raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, again, another quotation from the Corinthians. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Two very different views that are going on in the Corinthian church. On the one hand, all things are lawful for me. I can do anything, including be sexually promiscuous. On the other hand, the slogan is, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The Corinthian church is filled with confusion over human sexuality, filled with confusion over marriage itself. And so no wonder Paul has to write to them to give them instruction. You know, David and Bathsheba, the story that we're all familiar with, 
is certainly held up as probably the most clear story in the Scriptures of the tragedy of adultery. It's a far cry from the way God created man and woman in the garden. When He made Adam and He said, it's not good that He is alone, I will make a helper fit for Him. And then they come together and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a glorious picture of marriage. Something that has not been experienced since then because of the fall of mankind. You see, God's teaching on marriage and sex doesn't begin with, you shall not. But rather, it begins just the opposite. The man and the woman were naked and without shame. They were gloriously married together and bound together in a physical relationship. It's a glorious picture of marriage. A man and a woman, an exclusive, committed, permanent bond with each other. And not just happy, but you might say completely vulnerable, completely exposed to each other, naked before each other. And happy. It's glorious what God has given to us. You might say that Adam had no reason to go looking around saying, I've got all that I can desire right here. But that's only chapter 2. And chapter 3 comes, there's great harm in marriage. Sex is ripped from its context of marriage. It's used as self-fulfillment nowadays. All because sin has entered in the world. What the commandment does then when the commandment comes is to guard the preciousness of marriage. Guard the sanctity, the holiness of marriage. And what we want to do here is look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 where God gives us some very clear instructions related to this commandment that has to do with both marriage and human sexuality. Now I'll tell you, I have four points. The first one is the longest. Okay, So stick with me. God's great gift of sex is the first point. God's great gift of sex. In chapter 6, verse 13, the Corinthians say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, you get hungry, it's an appetite. And the same is true of a sexual appetite. That's all that it is, is a physical appetite. And when you feel like you desire it, you should just go to it with anyone at any time. Sex is nothing more than a physical appetite. And Paul's response is meant to refute that fact. He says, God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, interestingly, what Paul starts here with is the fact that uh, we are physical creatures. We've been created with a body, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it is meant for sex. In other words, we all, every human being is a sexual creature. We've all been created with a physical body and we're all meant for it. But it's meant to be used in ways that are for the Lord, holy unto him. And so Paul is affirming the fact that we're bodily creatures and that sex is central to what it means to be human. It's not merely an add-on. It's not just an add-on to marriage. It's not just something that you do occasionally. It's not meant just for procreation. It's very central to the human experience. God, if it, of anybody, affirms that fact in the Scriptures. God made it good. It is a good gift. So why then does He limit it? Why does He say here, 
That a man is not to have sexual relations with a prostitute. That that's unlawful in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's because sex was meant for a special relationship. Verse 16 tells us this. Do you not know that he who is joined, literally glued to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, the two will become one flesh. What Paul is saying here is that it's not merely an appetite. It's not merely some physical activity that you do. It's actually something that binds husband and wife together. It's a glue. It's a powerful agent to solidify the marriage bond. The commitment that a man made to a woman and a woman made to a man to say, I will love you until I die is most visibly expressed through sexual relationship. And so it's meant to be an expression of the one flesh union that we have, but also it's meant to be the glue that binds a marriage together. Marriage is about oneness. It's about companionship. It's about intimacy. It's about being joined together. And that only happens in a committed, unbreakable relationship. And that's why Jesus declared what God has joined together. Let no man separate. God has designed every one of us here today for a lifelong committed love. That's what we're designed for. Marriage is between one man and one woman that we might experience true intimacy, true companionship. Marriage is to be built on trust, a faithful bond. And that's the only real intimacy and real companionship that God has for us that will satisfy us and that we truly long for. Adam and Eve were naked and they were without shame. That could not be said of any other marriage relationship since then because of sin. But the only way to have a real marriage Real companionship, real intimacy, real trust is to commit to one another forever. And that's what marriage is all about, so that we're able to be vulnerable and exposed and yet at the same time safe, naked and without shame. No fear, complete trust. That means sex is only real when it's an expression of committed love between a husband and a wife. All other sexual expression is False. All other sexual expression is false. Listen to Lauren Winner. She wrote a book called Real Sex, and she says this. One can say that in Christianity's vocabulary, the only real sex is the sex that happens in marriage. The faux sex that goes on outside of marriage is not really sex at all. Now, how can that be said? Because all forms of adultery, all forms of sexual immorality are rooted in selfishness. Self-interest. What I can get from it. It's about satisfying me, not satisfying my spouse. It's what adultery is. That's what sexual immorality is all about. And therefore, adultery ends up destroying the one flesh union between a man and a woman because essentially it says, I no longer desire you. I want something else. And so God has given the highest view of, of sex in the world. Some people might object to that 
today in our culture. People certainly come along and say, well, the Bible's view is restrictive. The Bible's view is oppressive. The reality is that any other view is based on selfishness. Out for personal gain and pleasure. Others might say, well, we're, we love each other. We're engaged in sexual activity, but we love each other. We don't need a marriage certificate. But you see, even that is still about the individual. It's saying, I won't go all the way and commit myself to you, bind myself to you in marriage. That's why Jesus said that adultery is not merely the physical act but includes lusting after someone else. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. 28. Everyone who has looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a longing without commitment. It's a desire for pleasure without commitment. It's a desire to get something without commitment even emotional attachment to someone else. And sometimes women are prone to this where they look upon their husbands and they're dissatisfied with them. And so they begin to wander mentally and emotionally and think of other men. It's the same principle that Jesus talks about here. It's lust of the heart. No matter what it's what it is, it's Declaring to our spouse that you no longer satisfy me. I desire another. Either way, a false view of sex is self-serving and it is a low view of human sexuality. Adultery is wrong because it tears apart what God has made beautiful. The oneness of marriage. It's like trying to tear apart two pieces of paper that have been glued together. It's painful to try to rip them apart and destruction and damage comes and that's the very thing that takes place in adultery. Sex is a good gift that God has given to husband and wife so that we might continually feed the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual oneness, the spiritual intimacy, the commitment of our relationship. So let me mention three things here in terms of, you might say, application. One, is that good sex is central to a good marriage. Good sex is central to a good marriage. Good sex guards against adultery and builds intimacy. Now the question is, what does Matt mean by good sex? I don't mean a rating system. I'm not talking about the Hollywood version. Rather, I'm talking about the Bible's view, and that is sex that is focused on your spouse. Focused on building intimacy. Focused on pleasing another. Focused on commitment. If you think about some words maybe that the Bible might use for righteous and holy sex. Tender, selfless, giving, passionate, pleasurable, consistent, intimate, respectful. This is the kind of sexuality that God wants in marriage because it builds that sense of commitment between husband and wife. But secondly, good sex is established outside the bedroom. Since real sex is an expression of a deep friendship, a deep oneness, then a deep friendship is the very thing that husband and wife must pursue if they're going to have the kind of marriage that is guarded against adultery. 
You might say that adultery almost never happens in a good marriage. And the very things that make for a good marriage relationship are the very things that will open the doors for a healthy sexual, physical life between a man and a wife. That means as men must work to make our wives feel safe and secure. Safe in our love. That we're not going anywhere. That we're committed to them in every single way. That they feel special. That they're delighted in. That they satisfy a husband. And women, what you're called to do is to work to make your husbands feel confident and respected. Listen to a couple of writers, husband and wife, Tim and Beverly LaHaye, and their book, The Act of Marriage. It says, many husbands subconsciously fear that their wives endure lovemaking out of a sense of duty or some lesser motivation. What every man needs, especially during a period of defeat, and talking about losing a job or something of that nature, is to be convinced that his wife loves and respects him for himself and not for anything that he does for her. And when husband and wife treat each other in that way, then they long to have that one flesh union that the Bible speaks about. Third thing is this. Good sex education begins in the home. It begins in the home. And the reason I know that is because Proverbs chapter 5 and 6 is written from a father to a son about this particular subject. Come back to that in a minute. But having, having the talk with our children often is very intimidating. It's something that many parents shy away from because it's scary, and it is scary. But I want to encourage parents to do something different than have the talk, but rather have a conversation. A conversation that lasts over a number of years. A conversation that begins to build successively, you might say, as stairs step on top of one another. So that over time, your children are beginning to understand how they have been created by God. What they're created for. The joys of marriage and the pleasures, eventually, of having a healthy physical life with their spouse. Daughters need to be taught that their bodies are good and that they're meant for sexual pleasure and marriage covenant so that they're able to approach life as a young woman with a desire to honor God and approach marriage with a healthy view of what it is all about. I've performed a number of weddings for young couples over the years and one of the things that Sally and I found out is we would do premarital counseling is that a lot of young women who grew up in wonderful Christian homes, who grew up in good churches, and many of which were educated in Christian schools, grew up thinking that sex is a taboo. And what happened was they entered into marriage, and all of a sudden they began to grow with anxiety as the wedding approached, because they were being asked to make a complete 180 in their mind and now begin to think of sex as something that's good that I'm supposed to do. And they felt as if there was something wrong about it, something dirty about it. And they really struggled for the first years of their marriage. And young women need to have good sex education at home so that they're prepared to honor God in marriage. Sons need to be taught that women are not mere objects for their pleasure but rather they are to be guarded 
that their holiness is to be protected and their purity is to be protected. Parents, you can take your children through Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 6. And what you'll find in there is teaching about how a young woman is not to use her beauty and her charm for her own personal gain. And a young man is taught how dangerously close to sexual immorality they can come every single day because the temptations abound and they are to guard themselves. Some parents ask the question, well, when do you begin the conversation? Well, I can't answer that question for every child and every parent. But I will say this. Children are often thinking about it long before we're comfortable talking about it. Children are often thinking about it long before we're comfortable talking about it. And it doesn't have to be, as I said before, the talk that explains everything at once about the birds and the bees. Rather, something that builds over time. We tend to teach our young boys from early on how they are to treat young girls. And our young girls, how they are to treat young boys. So that the trajectory is holy and good. And by the time they enter into marriage, they're ready. And they're excited about a lifetime of commitment to their spouse. God gave sex as a gift. And you might say in many ways we're to give it away to our children by teaching them a holy view of it. Now that's the longest point. Let me mention a few others very quickly. The second is God's grand purpose for sex. Paul here points us beyond earthly marriage to the marriage of Christ and His bride. He says in verse 17, He who is joined, that's the same word that he's used about a husband and wife, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ and every individual Christian is glued or joined to Jesus. So that the marriage bond and the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the spiritual bond that Jesus has with His church. If you want to read more about that, look at Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul explains this even further. And he tells us this glorious truth that our marriage relationship and the physical relationship in marriage is meant to tell the truth about Jesus' relationship to His bride. So here's the point. Our sexual thoughts and our sexual actions should tell the truth about Jesus' relationship to His bride. Does it tell a lie? Because Jesus will never look at His church and say, you no longer please Me. I do not desire you. And so in marriage, what God is saying is I want your physical relationship to say true things about the marriage between my son and his bride, the church. You see, adultery is wrong because it lies about who Jesus is. It says he's a faithless God. It says he's an adulterer when it really isn't true. Let me move on here to the next point here, and this is this. God's gracious purification. 
of sexual sin. This is very important. God's gracious purification of sexual sin. Look at this disturbing question that Paul asks in chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he's asking that question to the church. And here's what he says. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These were the people that were in the church at Corinth. And here's what he says to them. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But... You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. For everyone who is an adulterer, which means that we lust after someone else, which puts just about everybody in that category, Paul says, through the grace of God, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Friends, anyone who struggles with sexual sin, with guilt from the past, with a sense of shame, hiding from it, you might say, this is good news. Because only Jesus can take our guilt away and only Jesus can deal with the pain of the past. Sex is a powerful reality in our lives. One of the interesting things Paul says here in verse 18, he says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Now, that's a strange saying. It literally means every sin, not every other, but every sin a person commits is outside the body. And some commentators would say this is another quote from the Corinthians. Quote, every sin a person commits is outside the body. In other words, it doesn't harm me in any, any way. It doesn't affect me on the inside. It doesn't damage my heart. It doesn't do anything to my mind. And Paul is saying just the opposite. In many ways, sexual sins are the most powerful in creating guilt within our hearts because they get so close at the core of who we are as human beings. That's why the gospel is so important. That we experience the cleansing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he makes all things new. And when we experience that, we're also able to give that forgiveness away to our spouse. And say, I forgive you too because I've been forgiven. And so God's gracious purification of our sexual sin is important. And the last thing here. God's, God's good commands for sex. And Paul has a negative one and he has a positive one. And the negative one is simple. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it, he says. We're to flee from the fantasy life in our own minds, from lust, from emotional adultery. We're to flee by doing this, by arresting thoughts in our own minds. That when the thought begins to enter into the mind, when we've seen something we shouldn't see or we've contemplated something that we should not have contemplated, we're to arrest it quickly and say, Lord Jesus, I love you too much because you have loved me to dwell on that reality. We need to arrest our thoughts, but we also need to flee what we expose ourselves to. 
reading material, magazines, movies, pornography. We need to flee by cutting off as much access as we possibly can. For some people, that may mean putting software on your computer and giving the password to your spouse. Saying, don't tell me what it is. Incidentally, one of the things that we've done just recently in our church is for our Wi-Fi system is basically to put software on our computers that guard our computers so that our children or anyone else are not exposed, but also on our Wi-Fi system to put protections on it so anybody who brings a device into our building will not be able to get on websites they shouldn't. Why? Because the last thing we want to do is to be culpable as a church to feed a sexual addiction that someone has or even a curiosity that someone might have. You know, there's two major problems with sexual immorality. It's not that God's a killjoy. It's not that He doesn't want His people to have pleasure. It's this. Number one, sexual immorality is all about exchanging real intimacy for pure pleasure. Real intimacy for mere pleasure. Dr. Harry Schomburg in his book, False Intimacy, says it this way. People from all walks of life, Christian and non-Christians, rich and poor, tenaciously pursue sexual behaviors in order to help alleviate their relational pain and make themselves feel good, satisfied, and in control. In other words, for lack of real intimacy or to escape real intimacy, people look at images and contemplate images and engage in sexual immorality. Because it's a way of having pleasure without the risk of intimacy. But there's another problem with it too. And the problem is training ourselves to be selfish. Gratifying ourselves. And then coming into marriage with false expectation of our spouse. And if you talk to anyone who is addicted to pornography... They will tell you they cannot get the images out of their mind. And what they expect is that their spouse will be just like the image on the screen. But there's a positive command here too. It's in chapter 7. Just the opposite of the saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul says this in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her body, her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. What Paul is saying here is go to it. Plan for it. Enjoy it. May it be central to your marriage. And I think that's all I need to say about that. Let me conclude with a story real quick that I read earlier this week. It says, last weekend, my parents left on a long-awaited trip to Hawaii. They were as excited as if they were on their honeymoon. When my parents married, they had only enough money for a three-day trip 50 miles from home. Now they've been married 50 years. They made a pact that each time they made love, they would put a dollar in a special metal box and save it for a honeymoon in Hawaii for their 50th anniversary. Dad was a policeman and mom was a school teacher. They lived in a modest house and did all their own repairs. 
Raising five children was a challenge, and sometimes money was short. But no matter what emergency came up, Dad would not let Mom take any money out of the Hawaii account. As the account grew, they put in a savings account and then bought CDs. My parents were always very much in love. I can remember Dad's coming home and telling Mom, I have a dollar in my pocket. And she would smile at him and reply, I know just how to spend it. Mom and Dad never told us how much money they had managed to save, but it must have been considerable considerable because when they cashed in those CDs, they had enough for airfare to Hawaii plus hotel accommodations for 10 days and plenty of spending money. As they told us goodbye before leaving, Dad winked and said, tonight we're starting an account for Cancun. That should only take 25 years, he said. It's a quaint story. But in many ways, it's a picture of the very thing that God has provided for us in marriage. And the command is meant to guard that preciousness so that one day we're able to say the same thing and rejoice in our spouse. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we confess to You that Sexual immorality and adultery is not something that just goes on in the world. It's something that goes on in the church and it goes on in our own human hearts. We pray for your cleansing. But more than that, we pray that you would renew us on the inside. That you would renew us in a new commitment to our spouse. That you would renew within us a new commitment to wait upon a spouse. So that our marriage would be a picture of your marriage with your bride. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.